Chris Reback, and this is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to workingcapitalreview.com, sign up with your email, and each day get a new smart post delivered. It's already one of the major issues of the 2020 presidential campaign. Does American capitalism still work? In the face of ever-widening income disparity, not just the exponential upward movement at the top, but also at best stagnation near the bottom, economic inequality is the key social and political topic, which is why Joseph Stiglitz's 55th high school reunion was so telling. It was about four years ago, and the Nobel Prize-winning economist was reminiscing with old friends in Gary, Indiana, when he heard a story that made him stand up straight. Then he heard another, and another. These classmates' stories about themselves and their families brought to life the statistics Stiglitz had been seeing in his economic charts. Lost jobs, poor access to health care, shorter lifespans, waning hope. The numbers hadn't lied, and now they were talking to Stiglitz at his high school reunion. Their message? The economy was broken. In fact, more than just the economy wasn't working, capitalism itself seemed off. From his past and current work, Stiglitz knew the causes. Exploitation and market power, mismanagement of globalization, a deregulated financial sector that helped lead to the Great Recession, new technologies that threatened even more job displacement, the growing difference between wealth creation and wealth extraction. Following that class reunion, Stiglitz further saw an erosion of society's pillars and, being an economist, connected them all, the economy, capitalism, and democracy. He decided to sound the alarm, and the result is his new, powerful book, People, Power, and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. Stiglitz has written a definitive economic and political blueprint for these times, a detailed agenda he calls progressive capitalism. We have to, he says, save capitalism from itself. About Joe Stiglitz, beyond the Nobel Prize, he's earned enough awards to be their own podcast. Among his career highlights, he served as President Clinton's chair of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors and chief economist of the World Bank. He's the best-selling author of more than 10 books and today is a university professor at Columbia University. Before my conversation with Professor Stiglitz, though, I have two asks. First, have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Second, I hope you like these conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Especially with the podcast name change, it'll go a long way to helping people find the conversations. Of course, regular listeners already know my parallel ask. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. That's it. Here's my conversation with Joe Stiglitz. Professor Stiglitz, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Nice to be here. So just to be clear, if you hadn't attended your 55th high school reunion in 2015, (laughs) would we be reading this book and even talking today? Uh, Yes, we would. Uh, You know, uh, I had been seeing uh, in the statistics uh, what was happening uh, in the United States, Uh, the stagnation at the bottom, actually worse than stagnation, uh, the soaring incomes at the top. Uh, I wrote a book called The Great Divide. I wrote another book called The Price of Inequality. 
But uh, going back to my reunion, my 55th reunion in Gary, Indiana, uh, gave me a, a, a visual, uh, a visceral uh, feeling for what was going on. Uh, and this was before Trump arrived in the scene, yeah. uh, but it was the kind of uh, uh, divide uh, that I had warned against uh, in my, some of my earlier books. Uh, you saw the anger of uh, those who who basically had uh, almost given up hope. Mm. So was it was it more the stories and and what you heard from your friends? Was it what you saw in Gary, Indiana? I'm a uh, Chicago uh, kid myself, so I'm, I'm, you know, familiar, somewhat familiar with uh, the the somewhat rise and and terrible fall of Gary over the years. Um, And and what was it? Was it weird? Did you kind of know to yourself, wait a minute, those statistics that I've been reading, I'm, I'm hearing them and seeing them in real life? It was really much of the latter. I had been back in Gary. I did a film, a documentary about globalization in Gary uh, about 10 years earlier. So I had seen the devastation, uh, uh, and I you know, had a chance to talk to a, a number of people. Uh, but that's very different than going back to your high school reunion and, and seeing your classmates and hearing their stories. Uh, their personal stories of what had happened to them. They graduated from high school, and we were in another one of those episodic downturns. They couldn't get a job, uh, and how they couldn't afford to go to college, and what that meant uh, for them the rest of their lives. Um, It was also very visual because I had just a little bit before that, gone to my college reunion. I, I graduated from uh, uh, Amherst, and um, seeing, and these were people who were relatively successful in life, and seeing just the difference in health. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things I talk about uh, in this book and some of my earlier work is the inequalities in health. Yes, and uh, you could see that right in front of your eyes. Uh, not only, again, in terms of of uh, the actual physical condition uh, that my classmates were in, but also in the the roster. Uh, how few of my Amherst colleagues' uh, classmates had died, and how so? How many of my high school classmates had died? Yeah, an incredible split. So. Have you written a book about economics or a book about democracy or even a book about the future of our society? It's about all three, but uh, one of the themes I hope comes across is that you can't separate uh, any of these pieces, that uh, our uh, economy, uh, no economy exists in a vacuum. Uh, It's governed by rules, regulations, whether we uh, think about it that way or not. uh, There's no... Uh, society that can function, no economy that can function without rules and regulations. Uh, it's always a question just of the scale and how, how, what they, uh, the nature of those reg- rules and regulations. So, and the problem is that if you have the wrong rules and regulations, you have a dysfunctional economy that may serve only the upper one percent, but not most of the rest of society, and may not even grow very that well. And then the other link is between those things uh, and our society and who we are as individuals. 
one of the things I try to bring out in the book is how our economy shapes who we are, and that, of course, who we are shapes uh, our economy and our society. So uh, it's probably not an accident that we saw such massive, uh, what I call moral turpitude, in the financial sector. Um, When you have uh, the kind of materialist, short-term focus only on how well I do and without regard to the effects on others, uh, you're going to wind up with more people, not everybody, but more people who are uh, exhibit the socially dysfunctional behavior that we saw in, in the financial sector and that we saw in Volkswagen when it cheated on, on, on uh, uh, the diesel emissions and uh, that we've seen in uh, the uh, uh, drug companies, Purdue, when they've pushed drugs that they knew were addictive and, and would kill people. Uh, they put profits uh, over people's lives. Uh, you know, these were maybe extreme cases, but it wasn't a question of uh, a, a, a rotten apple. These are pervasive things, and they uh, a lot of research in social science shows the link between uh, our society and uh, our economy and. Uh, this kind of individual individual behavior. So I, I want to follow up on on both levels, both the high level and then kind of some of the detail, because that that point, the last points that you were making there about the um, you know the, the the way the economy has evolved and how that compares to our values or our alleged values and that dichotomy, I found myself wondering: one, how did we get an economy that doesn't meet our alleged values? How do we get there? And secondly, in reading your analysis on how we got here, I kept coming back to the same question, which was why? Why do Americans, why have Americans put up with extraordinary income and wealth gaps? Why do we put up with decreasing health, lower life expectancy? We're dying younger. We've, we've read that elsewhere, and you pointed out as well, as well as the inequalities in life expectancy that you t- talk about when you, you know, looked at what you saw at Amherst and your reunion there versus your reunion in, in Gary. And, and why in the world has this continued for so many years? So to answer your first question, how do we get here? You know, my answer a little bit facetiously is step by step. You know, <laughs> you don't go there uh, overnight, and uh, gradually, uh, then suddenly, uh, gradually and gradually, and it's like one of those things that suddenly you wake up and say, uh, "Golly, uh, how did I get here? And and why I am? Uh, uh, why am I here? And how do we get out of this mess?" Now, part of the way we got here, I think, is uh, we were sold a bill of goods. Uh, it was uh, a, perhaps a, uh, a plausible, I, not to me, but I, I can understand it was plausible. You know, we went through the period of the 70s where we had stagflation. Uh, the economy wasn't uh, performing as well as we would have liked, uh, not, nowhere near as we had well as had done in the uh, year, decades after World War II. And then along came Reagan and said, uh, uh, this idea of trickle-down economics, just let the economy grow and everybody will be uh, 
better off. Uh, Supply-side economics, just strip away regulations, lower marginal tax rates. It will free up the economy, and and we will, uh, the burst of energy will make everybody in our society better off. Well, it didn't work out that way. Uh, in fact, growth slowed. Uh, growth has been about two-thirds of what it was in the decades after World War II. Growth per capita, uh, about two-thirds of what it was per, uh, in the decades before World War II, uh, after World War II. Uh, and uh, virtually all the growth went to the upper 1%. Uh, if you look at a line showing uh, uh, the average income of the bottom 90%, which I uh, include in the book, You can't see any change. You need a microscope to see uh, any improvement. Um, It's a devastating chart, yeah. It is a devastating chart. I, you know, I, I keep repeating it. I, it's hard to believe, but other people have replicated it. Uh, uh, it is uh, uh, really now uh, accepted as as uh, what uh, describes what has happened in the United States. So, um, as these things happen one by one, uh, uh, we didn't revisit the logic. Uh, Rather, we doubled down. So mm. when uh, we didn't get the growth uh, that was promised, we said, well, let's lower taxes even more. Let's deregulate even more. Let's deregulate the banks. Uh, and so we were set on this course. Uh, and uh, as we doubled down on this experiment, <laughs> things didn't get better. In fact, uh It eventually led to the 2008 financial crisis, and it eventually led to where we are uh, today. And now we have four decades of this experiment. I think we can declare it unambiguously a failure. And uh, that really brings me to uh, the point of the book to say, okay, now we know uh, where we are. We know how we got here. Uh, where do we go from here? Hmm. Is it possible for us to use the power of the market, but not just to help the 1%, but to help all of our society? And that's where I brought in the concept of uh, progressive capitalism. And let me ask you to pause there, because yes, I, we will get into progressive capitalism and, and your vision and the, the plan. And you, you outline, I mean, you outline a, a platform and, and an approach and, uh, um, you know, that that certainly is going to be very much uh, part of the discussion as we get into 2020. But but just two two questions on the how we got here. Um, one, just to kind of put a, a point on it, at the very end of the book, you argue that perhaps there is more inequality today than after the Gilded Age or the Roaring Twenties. We'll get into your potential optimism for the future later as we talk about the, the your progressive capitalist plan. Um but but that's quite a condemnation of our current state of affairs. Yeah, and and it's partly you know when I say that it's a reflection of the uh, multiple dimensions of inequality in the United States uh, today. Uh, uh, inequalities that should be un- un- unacceptable. We we have marked disparities in life expectancies. Uh, we have marked disparities in access to education opportunity, uh, and. Uh, America prided itself in being, uh, you know, the American dream, uh, but the 
data show otherwise. Uh, the life prospects of young American are more dependent on the income and education of his parents yeah. than in uh, almost any other society uh, among the advanced countries. Now, now, would somebody say, could someone say, um, you, you know, but Stiglitz, you were President Clinton's chief economist. You had for a period, um, you know, a, a seat at the table, obviously many other things as well, World Bank, et cetera. And under Clinton, financial deregulation re- regulation and globalization increased, in, you know, while, while you were there. Did you feel at the time that those factors could be controlled. I, I know that you were advocating and you've ad- advocated for decades on a, let's call it a proper approach to globalization, a, a, a balanced approach to globalization. But you, as those forces really were advancing, you know, at, for, at times while you were there, um, did you feel that they could be controlled, financial deregulation and uh, the globalization? There were many, many fights that we had within the administration, uh, which I've written about elsewhere. Uh, yeah. uh, I, and, for instance, I, I strongly opposed the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and I was very concerned about the regulate that we, you know, we needed regulation of derivatives. Um, the unfortunate, uh, and why was. Uh, Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, those things uh, didn't occur. Uh, but then, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, forces of corporate power and financial power were overwhelming after I left in uh, January 1997. Uh, the Clinton administration did pass uh, those bills that glad the derivatives to be unregulated and repealed the Glass-Steagall Act that separated investment banks and commercial banks. And uh, uh, the whole deregulation uh, atmosphere in the financial sector, uh, as we now know, brought on uh, the financial crisis. Um, On globalization, again, I worried about the dangers of uh, excessive uh, unmanaged uh, globalization uh, worried about, uh, uh, for instance, particularly from the perspective of developing countries, what was called capital market liberalization, letting money slosh around the world, going in and out of countries, contributing to uh, financial contagion, as we saw in the 2008 crisis, um, and we saw also in the East Asia crisis. So those are the kinds of battles that I, I, I fought. Uh, some of them I would, you know, uh, Held the uh, held the day, you might say, uh, but uh, you've got the battle uh, scars. I, I had the battle scars, and and uh, maybe I I contributed to putting off these deregulation me- measures uh, a little bit, um, but uh, eventually we did uh, deregulate the financial sector, and uh, we had a, a kind of uh, uh, poorly managed. Globalization. So let's uh, let's shift and let's look forward a little bit. What is progressive capitalism? What are the principles of it? So the basic idea of progressive capitalism is the notion that uh, the power of the markets uh, can be tamed to serve society more generally, not just the one percent. 
uh, and uh, he's based on trying to understand what are the true sources of wealth of a country and the distinguish between uh, the ability uh, to get wealthy by creating wealth and create, contributing to society and uh, what is the source of a wealth of a lot of people, which is wealth grabbing or rank seeking, uh, trying to steal a larger fraction of the economic pie, and in the process actually often make the economic pie uh, smaller than it otherwise would be. Wealth creation versus wealth extraction. Exactly, and uh, and and that wealth extraction is often associated with exploitation. Uh, and there's been a lot of exploitation, exploitation of consumers, exploitation of workers, exploitation of the environment. Um, it, it Overall, you can say it, it tries to restore a balance between uh, the market, the state, uh, the government, and civil society, uh, recognizing that uh, government has to play an important role in any society, in any government, in any uh, economy. Uh, it, it plays a role, we've talked before about uh, the role in regulation, but it also plays an important role in providing essential services where the market uh, won't do what is needed. So, for instance, um, uh, the market didn't provide adequate retirement benefits. That's why we have Social Security. It didn't provide health care for the ages. That's why we have Medicare. It doesn't provide benefits for unemployed. That's why we have unemployment insurance. Uh, it uh, 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 doesn't provide insurance uh, for depositors. That's why we have deposit insurance. Uh, but most basically, when I talked before about what is the source of the wealth of a, of a nation, a country like the United States, uh, it's innovation, and all innovation is based on basic research, and basic research has to be supported to a large extent by government. So, and, and you know, right now, everybody in America is aware of the deficits in our infrastructure. Uh, that's because we've scaled back government. Uh, a decade ago, when interest rates were, in real terms, negative, that was a time that we should have done massive investments in uh, infrastructure. Indeed. But we didn't, because uh, a few people, uh, you know, uh, some of the conservatives said, oh, if you do it, we'll have too big of a deficit. The irony is, a decade later, they were willing to undertake uh, massive deficits, not to make our country stronger, but to give a tax cut to billionaires and to big corporations. That, that's only true if you characterize $2 trillion as massive. <laughs> that's true. But you, you, th this year is going to be the first year on record that we'll have a trillion-dollar deficit. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, $2 trillion used to be viewed as a big number, I know. Yeah, uh, I remember when it was a lot of money. And the problem was, we, we were promised when we had that uh, tax uh, bill, was that the, the tax cut for corporations would lead to more investment and would lead to more growth. But we actually saw where the money actually went. Uh, again, last year, a uh, trillion dollars of share buybacks. Um, and if you include uh, dividends, uh, what we realize is that the vast majority of the money uh, from the tax cut for corporations 
went uh, back to shareholders uh, in the form of cash or, or uh, uh, in other forms, but did not go into investments, let alone into wages, that would make the economy stronger. Now, you know the criticism, of course, particularly as the politics start to get involved. Uh, what you call progressive capitalism is really just a nicer way to say socialism. W- what's the difference between progressive capitalism and socialism? Well, classically, the term socialism meant government ownership of the means of production. Uh, and neither I nor any of the candidates in the Democratic Party are talking about government uh, taking over our steel mills, our coal mines, our auto companies. Uh, no one uh, is proposing uh, the, that kind of an economy. What they're talking about is making sure that somehow uh, everybody has gets the basic necessities of a middle-class life, uh, access to education for their children, uh, access to health care, uh, access to decent housing, a good job, uh, modicum security and retirement. Uh, these were the promises of middle-class life that we had back in the 50s, and uh, we seemed to within reach at that point. Uh, but today, that middle-class lifestyle is increasingly out of reach of uh, very large fractions of Americans. And when, uh, we are now so much wealthier uh, than we were in the 50s that it's clear that we can afford this. In fact, I would argue we can't afford not to do this. And what I try to lay out in the book is how uh, we can make all of these things uh, possible um, within the constraints uh, of, our, of our economy. You mentioned just a moment ago the presidential campaign. Is there a presidential candidate who best captures your economic agenda? I think uh, most of the Democratic candidates in one way or another are picking up on one or more of the themes that I'm emphasizing. A lot of them are, are talking about uh, the excesses of market power, which is one of the uh, themes that I talk about, the increased concentration, uh, uh, the need to have stronger antitrust laws. Uh, a lot of them, Elizabeth Warren has talked about the need for better financial regulation. Uh, uh, a lot of them are talking about better ways of managing globalization, doing something about the big tech companies and not not only their their market power, but also uh, their invasion of privacy and the political manipulation. Um, and a, a lot of the candidates, almost all the candidates, are worried uh, about what I call the basic pillars of, of a new social contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, Americans are, you know, rightly uh, concerned about healthcare, and rightly asking the question, you know, why is it that we're spending 18% of our GDP on healthcare, and compared to 11% in Canada, 11% in France, and yet we get poor health outcomes, and millions of Americans don't have health insurance. Millions of America feel a kind of precariousness. Millions of Americans are aware that if they lose their jobs, they lose their insurance, and pre-existing conditions may make it difficult for them to get a new insurance policy. And uh, President Trump and the Republicans are saying, uh, we're going to take away Obamacare. 
Yeah. So you have a a note of optimism uh, at the end of your book, and and it's noted on a few different uh, components, including uh, a bit of a look at history and how this isn't uh, the first time we've gone through uh, various stages like this. You talk about uh, Andrew Jackson and, and some of that period. You talk about uh, Reconstruction. Um, you talk about uh, the Supreme Court and some of the the challenges that that it's had. Um, uh, and you uh, and you also talk about the Gilded Age and and the Roaring Twenties, et cetera. Um, economists are not only supposed to help us understand the past, which you do, um, they're also supposed to help us prepare for the future, even at times prognosticating what the future holds. Um, you talk about the powerful and the powerless. Uh, which do you think will present a stronger influence on our future? The desire of the powerful to maintain power or the need of the powerless to radically change their situations? Uh, it's going to be a conflict, and that's one of the reasons I put power very central in in, in, in the title of my book. It is a, a going to be a struggle, as you put it, between those who have power today and want to continue to exercise that power for their own benefit and uh, the millions of Americans who are feeling increasingly powerless feeling alienated from society, uh, feeling that the system is rigged. So in the end, uh, and that's another word in the title, uh, uh, if we are going to get out of this mess, uh, it's going to be people power. It's the vote. We're still a democracy. Uh, we, we People still have the right to vote, even though we have gerrymandering, we have uh, attempts at voter suppression. If enough concerned Americans go to the voting booth, uh, they can correct uh, these distortions in our society, in our economy, in our politics. Uh, we don't need to have that, the influence of money the way it is. We are uh, the only democracy where money has such influence in, in our politics. So uh, it seems to me that, that uh, that's the element of hope. And when I see our young people, my students, uh, uh, the young people who've been so active in, in trying to bring uh, to the fore issues of their future, climate change, uh, issues of corruption in, in our politics, um, that is the engagement that they've had uh, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, that is what gives me hope uh, going forward. Well, and you have a whole section on uh, restoring democracy, and what you just described is why uh, I asked at the beginning, and I, I cheated, of course, I, I, I did know the answer, <laughs> about whether this was a book on, on economics or on democracy, and uh, of course, the, the answer is both. Um, thank you, Professor Stiglitz. Thank you for your time, and thank you for uh, just a, a fascinating, important book. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Joe Stiglitz. My thanks to Professor Stiglitz for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on iTunes. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.